Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. All right, you're going to hear a lot today about the mortality rate, death, especially on a large scale. That's sort of what the mortality, I mean, that's the definition of mortality, right? I mean, we're all going to die. There you go. Um, more, the mortality rate is related to coronavirus is actually one of the things that's hotly debated right now um, and how it's going to be tested and who's going to report and whether or not we're getting reliable ports, reports out of a lot of places around the world who want to keep um, the spread in those particular countries is secret, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, it, suffice it to say, you know, we're we're well up over 80 countries around the globe where the coronavirus is at least present. And um, in a fair number of those, at least one individual has succumbed, has died. So the m- mortality rate is one conversation that you and I as Christians can have today. Um, and actually getting people into a conversation about mortality um is is always uh, an interesting segue into a conversation about what do they think happens after they die. And so instead of let me just now this is this is not suggesting that we don't ask people um whether they think they're going to heaven or hell after they die. I, what I'm suggesting is maybe a little different approach. So where there is this talk of mortality, there is real fear of death, whether or not it's um a legitimate fear or not is a whole other thing. But um, there is an active fear of this virus because we don't know very much about it, and it's it's new, and there's no vaccine, and so people are afraid. And so um, in the midst of that, it gives us an opportunity to have conversations. So let me suggest that a conversation that you and I might have today with people in the culture is this. Hey, you know, gosh, the coronavirus thing, a little scary, right? Yeah, right. So, you know, it's mortality rate. It's at least some some factor greater than the flu. We don't really know. What exactly? 2%, 3%, 3.5%? I don't know. It's high. That's high. Um, and so uh, does that, you know, it sort of gets me thinking, right, about death. It gets other people thinking about death. Um, what do you think happens after we die? And that gives you an opportunity to hear what they think and where they are before you present what you think and where you are on the subject, right? So here's how that conversation might go. So, um, you know, so their answer to the question is in all likelihood, in all likelihood, their answer to the question is is going to somehow suggest that they believe they are going to have an ongoing existence in a place that's better than this. Like that is a lot of people answer the question in some way, shape or form that suggests they believe they're going to have an ongoing existence in some place better than this. But on what is that based and how and how in the world do they think they're going to get there? So even though people might have an impersonal understanding of their own creation and the way they came to be, they may buy into uh, scientism's answer to the question of where did we come from, but they have a personal answer to the question of where they think they're going after they die. Now, that is a logical inconsistency that you can play around with. So you think there's a heaven and, and you think you're going to get to go there. On what is that based? If you don't think that we had any beginning that was supernatural, 
why in the world would you think we have any existence beyond this that is supernatural? Like, what in what is that based? This gives you an opportunity as a believer to begin to till the conversational soil in which you can plant the seeds of the gospel, right? The truth of who we are and where we came from, how we came to be, um, and and who we are as fallen sinful people, where we have viruses and things that kill us, why death even is a part of the human experience, and what happens after death? Well, yes, I have an answer to that question, and it's a very, very personal answer to the question, and it centers on a person named Jesus. Let me tell you about him. All right, so there you go. There is a segue into the mortality rate conversation today. Oh, and if you don't like that one, it when the mortality rate conversation comes up, you could you could act like you misunderstood the person. I, I know, I know. This is this is the Carmen's conversational playground that sometimes I have. I'll say, "Oh, the morality rate. That is a super interesting conversation." You see what I did there? Mortality rate has a T in it. Morality rate in the culture pretty bad as well. Okay, actually, so, so, totally more severe than the mortality rate related to the coronavirus. So there you go. Uh, all right, up next, Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to continue our Fifty Shades of Truth conversation. We're actually going to talk about some of um, the challenges that we face in the culture today um, and how Christians can respond to statements and approaches that the culture takes when it comes to sexuality and gender and relationships. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Peter, you and I have um, started a conversation at one point about, um, are we calling them, uh, what are we calling these these statements, <laughs> these cultural statements that are made um, that Christians need to be equipped to counter? What are we calling them? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had a short way to answer that question, and that's why even the title of some of the the information and slides that I sent you on this is such a lame title, because I can't really figure out a way to say it short other than maybe to say something like, uh, there are certain statements or ways of thinking that are really driving the conversation in our sexuality and gender um, realities in our world today, or at least in our society today. And so it's to think through some of these different statements that really drive people's thinking that are often not biblical statements. <clears throat> now, I have no way of saying that in three words or less, but that's that's the general idea. All right. So you and I have talked on, on past occasions about a number of these we have uh, we have talked about uh, cultural statement number one, which is sort of correcting the church's hatred on uh, on this issue. We have yeah. uh, we have talked about cultural the cultural statement that you know we we can't judge like right who are we to judge uh, the cultural um, claim that well because Jesus welcomed sinners who are we to confront anyone about the the topic or subject of sin um, the church as hypocritical on many other issues and therefore without a voice on this particular issue. And then we've talked about, you know, sort of sin is sin. It's all the same. And so um, why would we obsess or, or concern ourselves with, uh, with sexuality issues above concerns about other sins as well? So that brings us to the sixth cultural statement on the list. Jesus didn't care about homosexuality. I, I describe this as the argument from silence. Um, just yep. because Jesus didn't talk about it doesn't mean he didn't care about it. Yeah, that's a, and it's a pretty common one. I hear it uh, often framed this way. Well, 
if homosexuality was such a big deal, then why didn't Jesus talk about it? And since he didn't talk about it, why uh, why should we care about it? Because we should just pay attention to the things that Jesus did talk about. And and I guess on one level, I understand that to some degree. But when you actually hold it up to the light and think through it a little bit, uh, think about all the things that Jesus didn't talk about that we would say are tremendously big deals. So Jesus, for example, did not talk about ethnic cleansing or genocide. And yet we're not going to suggest for a second that that's not a big deal or something as horrible as child abuse or uh, taking uh, cocaine or some sort of LSD substance. We wouldn't say for a second <clears throat> that those things aren't big deals. So uh, it really doesn't hold up. Again, it's understandable, but it doesn't hold up. I think another thing that listeners could uh, maybe benefit from just in the sense of I remember how much I benefited from it when somebody helped me understand the way the text, uh, the biblical text func uh, functions and why. And some of that <clears throat> is understanding the Gospels themselves. It wasn't like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John sat down and thought, you know, I really got to write a biography about the life of Jesus. I'm simply going to convey the historical events. Uh, I'm going to tell people about what happened. Uh, these guys were theologians, and in their theology, they had all kinds of material from Jesus, his life and his teachings and his ministry and his actions. I mean, endless, endless uh, bits of material. That the Gospel of John ends with the statement that if we even said everything about what Jesus said and did, it wouldn't. It would fill all the libraries in all the world. So what they did is they took the material and they theologically shaped it under a certain kind of theme for the audience to whom they were writing. And so, uh, for example, Matthew was written primarily to Jews. And the Jews who didn't believe that Jesus really was the Messiah and was the coming king of a kingdom, Matthew's whole book is sort of this apologetic document to prove that Jesus really was the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. So when you read Matthew, you constantly are running into this phrase, as the scriptures said, or as it was written. And you wonder why all these little asides, but Matthew is, again, he's a theologian writing to a Jewish audience about Jesus being king and kingdom. Mark is emphasizing Jesus being the son of God. And so Mark's gospel doesn't start out with any kind of origin story or birth story of Jesus. It starts with his baptism, where the climactic moment is the heavens are rent open, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he starts his document because he's going to prove that Jesus really was the son of God. Luke was writing to an entirely Gentile audience who thought that they were sort of on the outside of God's kingdom. <clears throat> And so when you read Luke's genealogy, for example, versus Matthew's genealogy, Matthew ties the genealogy back to Abraham, <clears throat> which is what the Jews would have cared about at that time. Luke ties his genealogy all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the reason why is that's where the Gentiles would have tied their genealogy back to. And then John is writing uh, to deal with some of the Gnostic heresy of the day, and he's talking a lot about the light and the life of Jesus that would have combated some of those heretical teachings. So all of that's to say, Carmen, when we understand why and how the scripture begins to function, we can pretty readily and easily answer the question, why didn't Jesus talk about homosexuality? Well, it's quite likely he did, but the biblical writers are not interested in including that information, primarily, probably, because in Roman society, male-female monogamous marriage was sort of the norm. He didn't feel the significant need to address it. It wasn't something that's happened in our country and culture today where it's been embraced and it's been accepted as sort of wholeness in God's kingdom. The other thing that I would add to that is when Jesus talks positively about male-female creation and he echoes the Genesis text and when he talks right. positively about marriage and when he goes to a wedding, 
um, and at that wedding performs his first sign, as recorded in the Gospel of John, um, Jesus is placing a value on male-female creation. He's placing a value on marriage as between a man and a woman. Um, and it's the, on- the only times Jesus does make reference to marriage, it is in the form of male-female monogamous marriage. And so Absolutely. I, I, I think that, you know, there's an argument um, for what Jesus did say uh, against the argument that Jesus didn't say anything about this. So, all right, for, so for Peter sure. Kapsner and I are going to continue uh, this conversation. We're going to jump to the next uh, cultural statement on the list. And that is, the world has fallen. We live in the realities of a fallen world. Therefore, even though it's less than ideal, we need to embrace these uh, these relationships, these LGBTQ um, approaches to things, maybe even thruppling and polyamory, because, you know, after, world, after, after all, the world has fallen. It's time for Christians to get on board. Uh, yeah, no. But Peter Kapsner is going to tell us how to um, say no in a polite manner next. <laughs> Continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Um, all right, Peter, I know I set you up before the break that you're going to give a polite response. I yeah, know. they I, have I to be actually, polite about this. Yes, I don't indeed. actually have any idea if you're going to be polite, but you are going to help us <laughs> um, respond in a way that is appropriate, that is honest to the scriptures and honest to God when, um, when we hear this kind of cultural statement. Hey, Peter, we live in the reality of a fallen world. Therefore, even though it's less than ideal— um, it's time for us to embrace same gender relationships or polyamory or gender binary um, because, you know, that's just the reality that we live in now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think back to the polite or sort of the appropriate way to talk about these things. I, I've probably found, unfortunately, through trial and error a bit because I do end up having to talk about these things in public, uh, maybe even more often <laughs> than I would like. But um, I'm starting to use words like it's very understandable, but or I'm very sympathetic to but and, and I really am. I mean, it, it is a very difficult world in which we live in, in terms of the teachings and what's happening uh, around us that we're sort of immersed in all day long. So I think it's sort of an appropriate approach is to really, truly sympathize with people that these statements make a lot of sense in terms of how it might drive their life and decision making. We just uh, don't have the time to critically think about them. And so related to the idea that uh, yes, it's less than desirable, maybe, in God's kingdom, but we live in a Genesis 3 world right now. This one is actually picking up a bit of steam among evangelicals who would like to stay within the authority of Scripture and recognize that male-female marriage is the is the view consistent with God's kingdom. And they'll say, but there's a certain level of acceptance that we have to have that this world isn't functioning <clears throat> the way that it is intended to. And I, the, the problem with that line of, thinking, Carmen, is it's along the lines, so where does that stop? Like, what what do we decide and, and who gets to decide those things that we would otherwise sort of turn a blind eye to, that we would otherwise, uh, you know, maybe shouldn't embrace or whatever it is? It, should we embrace greed because greed is part of the fallen world? Should we embrace deceit because, yes, even though it's less than ideal, we should embrace it? And, and that leads in an entirely different conversation because, of course, people will then end up saying, well, no, we're not going to embrace, you know, murder, or greed, or deceit, or anything along these lines. Uh, but usually, the next part of the conversation is, well, then, 
why should we care so much about homosexuality? And, and you and I can talk about this on a different segment at some point. And I think the most powerful objection is, is what could possibly be wrong with two people living in a loving, other-centered, monogamous relationship behind their own closed doors in some suburb of some city in the United States. They're not bugging anybody, so why should we even care? Whereas, of course, greed and deceit and murder and some of these things are going to really impact people. And it's a powerful objection. And it's too much for this morning that we can get into. But uh, to say within the, this, the framework of this objection, it really doesn't make a lot of sense at the end of the day to say, well, we're in a fallen world. Let's just embrace things that fall short of God's kingdom. We're actually called to live within the future hope of God's kingdom in which all things are going to be set right and to shine the light of that hope of our future in this present time. Uh, our actual home is God's kingdom in heaven. It is where we're headed. Uh, it is the, the place from which we derive our values and it derives our ways of life. And Christians are simply called to shine the light of that home in the present so people can be reconciled as they're walking out their future as well. Yeah, I want to live in the kingdom principles <laughs> as much as possible, even in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. I am an ambassador of that king and that kingdom. Um, and so even even though the culture where I am currently living is not living by those principles, I I must. I'm not going to go right. native and um, and become like the culture where I am currently deployed as an ambassador. I'm going to continue to bear living witness to the realities of the king and the kingdom where I ultimately have my uh, eternal citizenship. All right. So um, I think we have time for one more if we do it quickly. Yes? Sure. You have time for one more? Okay. So um, so next up, we have the Bible was written, um, well, you phrase it this way, in more ignorant times. Um, <laughs> I phrased it this way. We sure do know a lot more than those people knew then. And so, you know, we're more enlightened. We know more than the people who wrote the Bible. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Because we'll lean into the ancient philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, uh, even to this day in academia in terms of the profound nature of their thinking. And we'll even say that Jesus had amazing things with which to say. And so people sort of pick and choose. They say, well, they were kind of ignorant on one level because we know better now, uh, but maybe they understood a few other different things. And long story short, Carmen, this one is based on the assumption that that which is newer is that which is better and more reliable. <clears throat> and what passes as knowledge within academic institutions is almost always the result of some sort of agenda of a professor that has to get uh, published somewhere. And, and so I'm pretty inherently skeptical about any kind of new knowledge that comes into the world. It doesn't mean it doesn't help sometimes. It doesn't mean that we don't have our own Galileo and Copernicus moments where we realize, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe the uh, sun does not revolve around the earth after all, like we do have these epiphanies, but most often it's hardly along those lines. It's, it's more often that we've forgotten, that we, we don't remember what it is, the beauty and wonder for which we're made. And so when I'm talking with my young people or I'm in churches talking about these things, uh, it's along the lines of I think we need to have a Josiah moment in our sexuality where we sort of remember and uncover the book of the law like Josiah did. Like how in the world did the ancient Jews lose sight of the book of the law, the very heart of their community and their morality. They lost it for generations and generations and thought, wow, we're really rediscovering something amazing and important here. And I think that's where we are as well at this point in time. We need a Josiah moment in our sexuality to reflect back upon and say, maybe the scriptures really did have something incredibly important for us related to the shalom of our sexuality and the newer statements of the day should be treated with a bit of skepticism. 
Peter Kapsner, um, thank you as always. All right, we have worked our way um, on a prior occasion and on this occasion through, I don't know, three quarters, two thirds of the list. Um, And so there are a few more of these um, talking points left to have, and we might be able to come up with more after that. Hey, I should also mention, Peter and I, um, who, for those of you who like to hear us talk with each other, we have a weekly podcast. You can check it out at thetillpodcast.com, thetillpodcast.com. Peter, talk with you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Carmen. We got break, we got break point up next. All right, so often uh, we talk here about what it means to be pro-life, and we talk about being uh, pro-life from conception to natural death if, in terms of how we define the parameters of life. When you are asked, what do you mean by being pro-life? Um, is that just a conversation about abortion access uh, here in the United States of America? Or is that a robust conversation um, about everything from the womb to the tomb? Is it, yes, about the pre-born and their protection, but is it also about the first thousand days Uh, of a child's life and being sure that, you know, that mom has nutrition and that child has uh, what it needs early in life. How about caring for those with special needs or racial reconciliation? What about encouraging dads towards being present and involved? What about rallying godly men or protecting people against slavery and human trafficking and pornography? What about adoption and orphan care? How, uh, what about end of life issues? How deep and wide and broad and full is your pro-life um, understanding, advocacy, and vision. Um, all right, so next up, I've got the president of Lifeline Children's Services. Uh, his name is Herbie Newell, and um, he's a fascinating guy. He wrote a book called Image Bearers. He's coming today to talk about really this very robust, whole, whole life, pro-life mindset from womb to tomb. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. It's Peter speaking to us when he urges, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. We know our Father's name, and He has claimed us, but He has yet to come for us, so here we are, caught between what is and what will be. No longer orphans, but not yet home. What do we do in the meantime? Indeed, it can be just that, a meantime. Time made mean with disease, deceit, death, and debt. How do we live in the meantime? How do we keep our hearts headed home? Let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and who makes it perfect. Look to Jesus. Ponder his life. Consider his ways. Meditate on his words. Jesus. Just Jesus. This is Max. Locato. Speak life, speak life. Through the deadest, darkest night. Speak life, speak life. When the sun won't shine. Joining me now is Herbie Newell. Uh, Herbie is the president and executive director of Lifeline Children's Services uh, and all of its ministry arms. Herbie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to join you and your listening audience there in the Midwest and other places. And so what a, what a privilege. Well, thank you so much. Um, Herbie is also the author of a book called Image Bearers. I want to recommend that to you. And you can check him out and uh, and the ministries that he is engaged with at Herbie Newell. And Newell is N-E-W-E-L-L, HerbieNewell.com. Herbie, let's talk about, um, 
you know, you're you're an accountant uh, with an MBA, you um, you know, like a CPA auditor, uh, and yet now you're a pro-life advocate. Talk with us about sort of that vocational transition. Yeah, well, uh, what a what a great segue because yesterday we just celebrated my wife's birthday, and she really is the the heartbeat and the passion of how we transitioned for me out of the professional accounting world into leading a pro-life uh, orphan care organization. And and really, you know, just simply, it was she would come home. She was the director of a local crisis pregnancy center in our hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. She would bring home the, the stories of these women and the places that they were in struggling with these crisis, unplanned, many times pregnancies where they had been a victim of abuse or molestation. And and here we were praying around our dinner table for these women and for these stories and, and each asking ourselves, is there something more active that the Lord is asking us to do in the lives first of these individual women and families? And, and the Lord really just started from the dining room table to birth this passion in us to say, vocationally, we've got to do this together and, and we've got to look for ways that our family, that our ministry can be actively caring for the most vulnerable around us, women in crisis pregnancy, the children who are born to single parents, you know, children that are in a foster care system and orphans around the world. So talk with us about um, uh, Lifeline, and people can find more information at lifelinechild.org. Um, talk with us about uh, about this ministry. I mean, some of the some of the things that are in, involved in this, I think, uh, are going to be a surprise to people. The the breadth and depth of what you're doing is really extraordinary. Yeah. So first and just simply, we want to be there for uh, the orphan, the foster child, the single mom, uh, just any vulnerable family and vulnerable child uh, in our country and around the world. So Lifeline, we serve here domestically in the United States of America. We have services in all 50 states, but we uh, certainly are licensed in 14 of those states. And then we work in 25 countries around the world. And our the core heartbeat of our mission is to equip the body of Christ, individual believers, churches, denominations, ultimately to manifest the sweet, glorious gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. And and at times it may just sound like, well, is that just evangelical uh, in nature? Or are you just preaching the gospel to the most vulnerable? Well, first and foremost, we believe there's response of the gospel. When we've been saved by the gospel of Christ Jesus, it creates a response in us to show the mercy and the love and the justice of Christ to those who are the most vulnerable. Uh, it, you go throughout the word of God and you see over and over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God commanding his people to care for the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And so we want to give practical, tangible ways to the body of Christ that they can do that. For churches, that may mean signing up for a parenting class where they teach families who have lost their children to foster care how to be a parent. They, they mentor these parents and help bring reconciliation between children that are in foster care and their biological families. Uh, for many, that may be stepping up to the plate and becoming a foster parent. As hard and as messy and as difficult as that might be, we want to equip them with the skills. We want to walk alongside of them with the ability that they need to pray for them, help their church wrap around them so that they can be a, a, a really an emissary of light uh, to Child Protective Services and the children in foster care. Uh, we, we certainly help families with adoption, both domestic as well as international. And then really probably one of the things that 
that the Lord has just uh, really blossomed, I would say, especially over the last decade, is our unadopted program. And that simply is a program where we are equipping the global church. So churches in Pakistan, churches in Uganda, churches in India and China and, and other countries to, to, to have these abilities to bring life skills, job skills, and care for the orphans in their neighborhoods. And so really what the, the heartbeat was, we believe that the commands of James 127, the commands of Deuteronomy 24, the, the biblical command for the church to care for the vulnerable wasn't just meant for the U.S. church or the American church. It was meant for the global church. And so it's been, it's really been an awesome privilege to, one, take brothers and sisters from the U.S. and take them around the world to help them encourage local churches to get involved on a daily basis in the lives of vulnerable families and vulnerable children. And, and, and certainly, I could unpack this for hours. And if people want more information, like you said, they can go to lifelinechild.org. All right. So one of the things you're going to find at lifelinechild.org is, um, is a link to the book, Image Bearers, the subtitle of which is Shifting from Pro-Birth to Pro-Life. When we come back from the break, I'm going to ask Kirby what that means. What does it mean to make a shift from a pro-birth understanding of being a pro-life person to being pro-life womb to tomb? That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Be strong in the Lord and never give up hope. You're going to do great things. I already know. God's got his- Continuing my conversation with Herbie Newell, he is the president of Lifeline Christian Services. You can find them at lifelinechild.org. Herbie, I set this up right before um, we took the break. Um, what does it mean to make the transition or the shift from pro-birth um, to genuinely pro-life? What does that mean? Yeah, so really, uh, you know, as as the Lord was just leading our team to think about this idea in this book, you know, the thing that we continue to see is we really do believe that there could be, Lord willing, in our lifetime, a time where we see Roe v. Wade uh, either in whole or in part overturned by the Supreme Court, and this push back to a state issue. And and I think as, as you see the flurry of activity, even over the last year, of states that have rushed to their legislatures to pass abortion bills, either like New York, that are including all abortion, or you look at, at southern states like Georgia, Tennessee, my home state of Alabama, that are rushing to the legislature to make abortion illegal. I do believe that we are seeing even states position themselves, understanding that that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. And the question really that I wanted to pose back to the church is, will we still be as passionate for life in the womb? Will we still be as passionate for life in general once this, you know, atrocious, uh, atrocious uh, Supreme Court decision is overturned? Uh, and, And that's really the question here is, will we stand up for life once uh, a mother has no other choice but to give life, which which is a glorious day. But will we be there on the other side of the postpartum ward, waiting with open arms to love on her and love on her child, to to encourage her, to equip her, to challenge her, to really be in that life of that family and that child? And I had the opportunity, Carmen, uh, here in Alabama to be a part of uh, helping put together the Alabama abortion bill, which was one of the most restrictive and and I think still now one of the most restrictive restrictive abortion laws uh, in in our country. And as we were doing that, I, I remember Kamala Harris, the senator from California, who uh, was was running for president at the time. She actually even came out and said, you know, those folks down in Alabama, you know, what are they basically? What are they doing? Uh, are they going to even care for this woman once she has the child? And that question really is. While she's been misguided on her abortion 
opinions, the question really is posed back to the church. What are we ready to do? Are we ready to do something aggressively good, aggressive with God's aggressive grace, with God's aggressive mercy, while also preaching the glorious gospel to these families and these children who are broken? And so uh, the, the question is, do we truly believe that God created life, that he formed and he fashioned life? And if so, then we need to be standing up for children and families and and, and adults that are struggling with special needs. We need to be caring for our, the elderly around us who are literally sitting in homes with nothing to do. We need to show dignity to all life, no matter what syndrome may be attached, no matter if they've been trafficked, no matter if they've been abused, no matter who they may be, we need to show dignity to all life. And in so doing, we're not only responding to the gospel, but we're making the gospel of Jesus Christ known. And so the question is, let's not wait, uh, or the, the, you know, the, the challenge is let's not wait for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Way. Let's go ahead and right now be aggressively pro-life in the way that we care for the vulnerable around us, that we care for the woman who's been trafficked, that we care for the family that's broken, uh, that we care for women who are single parents. So, um, Herbie, when we talk about um, issues in the culture today that for you and I, would be pro-life issues because they would be about human flourishing. They would be about the care and concern for the most vulnerable. They would It would include things like human trafficking. It would include conversations about racial reconciliation. It would include conversations about immigration. It would include conversations about children who are, um, you know, born out of wedlock and, you know, are image bearers of the living God, and so are their single moms. These are often conversations that because of a person's political position— they will um, they will somehow harden themselves, stiffen their neck and harden their heart um, against what really is the gospel position. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, we, we necessarily have to, and I, and I don't want to undermine this, we, we certainly have to uh, be very convictional when we vote. Uh, we have to be very convictional uh, when we think about uh, policies and candidates, because obviously abortion has become a political issue and we need it to be reversed. However, I think it's very dangerous when any believer looks to a political candidate, a government leader, and because they have their party affiliation or because they voted for them, they now begin to align themselves with all of the values, all of the stances of that political candidate, and they demonize all the values, all of the stances of any other political candidate. And, and I know certainly on the federal level, it's become very polarized. Uh, the, our political climate has become very po polarized. But on the state levels and on our local levels, we really need to advocate for life. And, and, and even as we look right now, uh, today in Alabama, and, and I don't want to open up, uh, you know, a box, but, you know, there is a man who, uh, unless unless the Lord and our governor intervenes, will be executed tonight here in Alabama. And someone else has already come forward and confessed that they committed the crime uh, and that this man is innocent. And yet a lot of Christians are being very quiet on this to say, hey, hey, governor, let's at least give some clemency to see if we can do some more investigation. Let's hold off this execution until we can do some investigation. Well, the same people who this weekend will be at the March for Life, Lord willing, and they need to be at the March for Life, right? We need to advocate against abortion, are being extremely silent 
on this man who is uh, in, in maximum security prison here in Alabama, potentially being executed for a crime he did not commit tonight. And so we need to have a much richer whole life ethic. We need to care for people of all races. We need to understand that in our country that there are African-Americans, uh, there are Jewish people, there are people from Asian descent who have absolutely uh, been been you know, segregated. They have been, uh, they've, they've been ostracized. They haven't had the same opportunities uh, that the majority culture have. And, and we need to stand up for dignity for life. And, and this is not a political issue. This is a gospel issue. You know, over and over and over again, we see through the, the, the word of God that God is creating a people from every tribe, every nation. You know, the Lord, when he was doing his ministry, and, and you see throughout the gospel, he reaches out to, to those that people don't expect. I mean, the Pharisees come to him and say, why does he dine with, with tax collectors and sinners? You know, John chapter 8, you know, this woman is caught in adultery, and, and you would think that the God of heaven would be the one accusing her, and instead, he stoops down, John chapter 8, he starts writing in the sand, we don't know what he's saying, uh, but but he, he he talks to the crowd, and he says, those without sin cast the first stone, and, and as you know, they, they drop their stones, and he looks at this woman with grace, with mercy, with love, with dignity, he looks her, and you have to believe he looks her in the eyes, if he stooped down, you know she stooped down if she's been caught in adultery, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they've all left. And he says, well, well, I accuse you not either. I, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And so we've got to step out with, yes, truth, right? Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. But we've got to stoop down with mercy and love and justice for all image bearers. And, and we need to align ourselves not with our political candidates, not with uh, the government leaders. We need to align ourselves with Jesus. We need to align ourselves with, with the gospel. And we need to align ourselves and our lives with what the word of God says. And if we do, that's going to look distinctively different than the Republican Party. And that's going to look distinctively different than the Democratic Party. That's going to look like people that are living for another kingdom, that are living for heaven and living for our Savior. And, and actively seeking um, to bring about in this time and place the principles of that king and that kingdom, the values of that king and that kingdom, uh, indeed, that um, as ambassadors of, of Jesus the king and the kingdom of God, we would actually be bringing heaven to bear right here and right now, and thereby make the gospel visible to people in substantial ways that might actually um, you know, begin to change not only the conversation— and real lives at a tangible level, but the culture writ large. So we thank you, um, Herbie, for the ways in which you are doing that, the way that you are pressing the full force of your life into these concerns and issues. You guys can check out uh, Herbie at Herbie Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L dot com. You can also check out the book Image Bearers um, and all of the resources available through Lifeline Child. It's actually Lifeline Children's Services, but the Lifeline child.org is the website lifelinechild.org Herbie um thank you so much Thank you Carmen We'll be right back All right a couple of you have raised concern on the text line that um what we should be focusing on is mentoring uh, men um and teaching them how to be dads um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think our challenge there is that we know the women because they're the ones who are pregnant. We don't often know um, the dads. And so, yes, absolutely. We need to confront um, our porn culture. We need to confront the way um, men do not see themselves as uh, as image bearers of the living God and therefore 
fathers in the spirit of the Father in heaven. Absolutely. And for those of you who have concern about that, I want you to mentor a young man today. Find a young man to mentor in this way today. Um, we're not going to continue to just cast these um, responsibilities on others or, um, or you know, find the one point in the conversation where somebody else isn't doing everything uh, that we think they should be doing. Instead, you know what? If that's the place where God pricked your heart and mind, then that is your calling today. So there you go. That's my encouragement. All right. Um, more at MyFaithRadio.com, at ReconnectWithCarmen.com. And we'll see you right back here tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.